0: This reading is taken from Genesis 42, which is on page 47 of the Church Bibles. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm may come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, "'You are spies. "'You have come to see where our land is unprotected.' "'No, my lord,' they answered. "'Your servants have come to buy food. "'We are all the sons of one man. "'Your servants are honest men, not spies.' "'No,' he said to them, "'you have come to see where our land is unprotected.' "'But they replied, "'Your servants were twelve brothers, "'the son of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. "'The youngest is now with our father.' and one is no more. Joseph said to them, "'It is just as I told you. You are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies.'" And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with his life, But but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. And this was done for them. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to the land of their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they they told them all that had happened to them. They said, The man who was lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We were twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who was lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take your food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so that I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow.
1: Let's grab a seat. And do turn back to that um, that passage on page 47 of the Bibles we're going to be uh, having a look at that Genesis 42 Genesis 42 on page 47 Um, do have that in front of me that would be a great help to me and you can check that I'm not pulling the wool over your eyes that I'm telling you what the Bible's saying good we're going through the the life of, of Joseph you'll know in a series that we're calling the saving of many lives And just to remind you that in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to have a slot during the church service where it'll be a chance for you to ask questions of anything that we've looked at during this series uh, as we follow the life of Joseph through this final part of of the book of Genesis. Uh, And it's never too early to start sending those questions in. So if you want to, you can use um, my email address. It's on the back of the service sheet. Send that to me if you've got questions about anything that we're teaching as we go through that passage and uh, then we'll deal with those in just a couple of weeks time good we're coming back to Genesis 42 and we're going to pray as we begin let's pray Father God thank you so much that by the powerful work of your spirit you caused the Bible to be written truth for all time uh, recorded for us we can hold it in our hands and so I pray, Father God, that the same Spirit who caused your word to be written would graciously be at work in us, and I pray that he would be transforming us and changing us to be more like your Your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray we wouldn't leave today as the same people. I pray that, that you would be changing us as we come into contact with the things that you're saying to us personally. Please, Father God, can that be your work in us today. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Good. Do you want to go and grab a seat? That would be a great help. Fantastic. Good. Well, I'm getting to that um, sort of stage in my life uh, where people start suggesting reunions. I don't know whether you've already already been through that phase or not. You know, sort of uh, 20 years since 20 years and a bit since I left university, 25 years since I left school, all, all that sort of thing. You know, why don't we get back together and see how we're all doing? Um, it's quite tempting in a way, isn't it, um, from one point of view. Um, you can look around um, and see how other people have aged. I mean, um, you know, compared with you. and sort of, uh, A friend of mine told me the other day that he went to a sort of meeting of people that he hadn't been to for quite a long time. And um, as he walked in, a guy called, a friend of mine called John, as he walked in, he overheard a comment which he wasn't really supposed to hear. You know sometimes when everyone goes quiet at the same time and there was a comment from someone over the other side of the room and they said to the person sitting next to them, the years have not been kind to John. <laughs> it's, quite, it's not the kind of thing you really want to hear, is it? Um it's quite tempting to go to reunions you can see how how people's lives have turned out Um, it's funny how often your you know um, your thoughts might turn to sort of some sort of revenge you just hope that the school bully has fallen on hard times and that kind of thing That the person who stole your lunch money has been done for fraud all those things you sort of rather hope when you come together for a reunion and um, there's a reunion of sorts going on in Genesis 42. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, people who haven't seen each other for uh, well, 20 years, really. Um, Joseph's reunited with his brothers, and in many ways, that those 20 years have not been particularly kind to Joseph. At least, uh, at least to start with. I mean, he, his brothers tried to kill him. You remember? Um, they were very jealous of him, and and they sold him into slavery. Uh, and uh, as a slave he was sent off to Egypt, and then there was this awful miscarriage of justice, and and he gets put into prison. And we we started to think last week about how God sort of prepares his saviors through suffering. Do you remember that? Um, God sort of prepares people to be saviors through suffering. In the same way that the, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus was prepared to be a saviour through suffering. We're told that. But because Joseph has been prepared in this way, I guess, and because he's someone who believes in his God, then when this reunion happens, it would be so easy for him to turn to revenge, wouldn't it? But in fact, he turns to love. He turns to love. I mean, his, um, his brothers, in one sense, do have a presenting problem. Uh, often in medicine, we were told to look for this sort of the question behind the question so someone might come into your surgery and 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 you'd say you know how can I help you and 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 they'd sort of tell you what they come for but often actually you're looking for the problem behind the problem Um, and the uh, the brothers do have a presenting problem and that's their hunger Um, They're they're really hungry because of this famine you can see that in chapter 42 verses 1 and 2 um, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? I mean, they seemed to have a great plan, didn't they, when it came to selling Joseph, but now that they're hungry, they, they're, they're not so quick off the mark. Um, you feel the desperation? Go down there, that's down to Egypt, it, it's sort of down south, and buy some for us, that's food, so that we may live and not die. I've, I've never really been that hungry. I don't know whether you've been that hungry. Uh, I was worried I wasn't going to survive, but they are. Um, the famine is very severe, Their lives are at risk. Um, so the presenting problem is that the, the brothers are hungry, they haven't got any food, but, but really there's a deeper problem, there's a problem behind the problem, and that's, and that's the sort of problem with their heart and their relationships, and it's tearing them apart, and it's tearing the whole family apart. And actually, like us, whether they recognize it or not, The love of a suffering saviour is exactly what they need. And so we're going to start there as we look at um, chapter 42. And and this is the first summary point um, as we go go through the details of that chapter. And that's firstly a family which is dysfunctional. A family which is dysfunctional. Uh, it's amazing how often God seems to use dysfunctional families in, in the Bible. As you read through the book of Genesis, we've met a number of dysfunctional families. Um, here's a picture of the family that I grew up in. Uh, you can see uh, some of my relatives. Um <clears throat> fairly eccentric bunch, I mean some of them. Uh, my granddad, who's not actually on, on, that, on that picture, is a big sort of farmer guy, being a cow farmer, thing I remember about him is that once he, um, uh, he ripped off the tap in the bathroom by mistake. He was, sort of, he was quite a strong guy. He just ripped the tap off. Um, then my brother, a uh, little bit eccentric, um, everything in his room had to be purple. It was extraordinary, really. I mean, it, it, was the, it was the 80s, I guess, but you know, everything, curtains, <clears throat> walls, carpet, all his clothes were purple for like three or four years. Uh, my, my dad is on the photo there he spent his whole life his whole career uh, working as an expert in tomatoes that was his um, we were so embarrassed at school everyone else's dads were like lawyers and policemen and no but our dad had to be a tomato scientist that was um, that was the family that I grew up in I mean no no family's ordinary are they uh, um, I think it's fair to say but what is striking about the family that God chooses to use in, in the Old Testament, in this part of the Old Testament, is, is, is that they, they have dysfunctionality right at their heart. This is the family, remember, who sort of inherit the promises from Abraham. Uh, I mean, this is, this, is a, this is a really important family. This is the family on whom the, the sort of hope for the whole world hang. I mean, for the salvation of the world, it all hangs on this family. But they have dysfunctionality right at their heart. And um, there's favoritism to start with I mean you remember the favoritism Joseph um, given a given this incredible coat um, because he was Jacob's favorite I mean Jacob himself was the you know grew up in a family where he had to flee from his older brother because of favoritism all kinds of dysfunctionality you think he'd have learned from that but no um, it carries on in the next generation Um, he Jacob had one wife that he preferred Rachel Um, he he loved her a lot more than um, than his other wife and and she had two sons Joseph and Benjamin and they seem to have been Jacob's favorites and so um, we saw in Genesis 37 he gives Joseph this special coat that sort of sets him apart show the world that Joseph was the best one you know better than all the other sons and then um, This chapter ends with Jacob refusing to let Benjamin go. Did you notice that? He's the other son of 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 Rachel. Um, He won't let him go. Have a look down at chapter forty-two, verse thirty-eight. Jacob says, "It's astonishing, really. My son will not go down there with you." In other words, he's saying, "I'm not going to send Benjamin with you off to Egypt." His brother is dead, so so Jacob thinks. Um, And he is the only one left. The only one left. The the other brothers are standing around him at this point. (laughs) They're saying, oh, thanks, Dad. Yeah, great. I appreciate that. Uh, Benjamin's your only son. Is that right? There's favoritism. And and then um, there's dishonesty in this family. I mean, uh, you know, I guess all of us... um, maybe have, have said things to our parents which aren't, aren't entirely true, but there's dishonesty right at the heart of this family. So the story of this chapter is how the, um, the brothers of Joseph go off to Egypt, and, and then they ask Joseph for food. Joseph now controls all the food in the world. Um, and, and then Joseph accuses them of being spies, um, and then he puts all of them in prison for three days. And, and then he, he keeps Reuben sort of hostage, and then he sends uh, the others back to, to go and get Benjamin. And then on the way back home, as they're going back to Israel, one of them discovers that the, the money that they'd given for, uh, for a sack of grain has been put back in the sack um, for, for some reason. It doesn't look good, does it? I mean, all the way home, they must have been looking for the blue flashing lights in their rear view mirror, mustn't they, as they sort of escape from Egypt with cash that they probably shouldn't have had. Um, I mean, it's not the most straightforward trip to go and get food. It's not like going down to Sainsbury's and Angel, is it? I mean, there are quite a few events that happen to the brothers as they go to uh, get some provisions. But notice, and and the Old Testament loves to do this, loves to tell stories from different angles so that you'll contrast and compare. So notice when the brothers get back home, they tell a slightly different story Um, Verse 29, have a look at that. Um, It's a bit different. When they came to their their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. Really? Did they? They said, the man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we're honest men, we're not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Um, And then by the end of verse 34, they're talking about some trade deal that they've struck. it's very sort of post-Brexit, isn't it? Uh, They seem to have struck a trade deal with the king of Egypt. Um, They leave out the three days in jail. They forget to mention they've already found some silver. Um, They're just giving a very edited version of events. There's favoritism in this family. And then there's dishonesty Um, but then there's suspicion as well. It's a terrible thing when people lose trust in each other in in a family. But have a look down at verse 36. Uh, This is when they've got back home. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. I mean, you wonder if in the sort of intervening 20 years since Joseph disappeared, um, Jacob has done some wondering. I mean, he's, he's sort of trying to join the dots. Um, because first Joseph disappears, and then, I, I mean, maybe the brothers turn up with a bit of money in their pockets they got from those Ishmaelite traders. And, and now Simeon has disappeared, and, and they've found some money in a, in a sack of grain, it, every time they come back, they're a brother short and they're flush with cash. Now, would that not make you slightly suspicious? Do you think? Slightly? And Jacob thinks that like some sort of twisted series of big brother, you know, that the housemates are getting sold off one by one. That, that's how little trust there is left in this family. Um, back in Canaan, it's probably not helped by verse 37. You see that? Verse 37. So Reuben says to his father, "Don't worry, don't worry, Dad. Um, if I don't come back with Benjamin, just kill two of the grandkids." I mean, is that a you know, is that a functional way forwards? I'm not sure it is really. I'm not going to change his mind. What a family! And I think the point is this: that the family of God on earth is dysfunctional. Um, it's dysfunctional. And in the same way, um, I think it's fair to say, see, see what you think, um, talk about this afterwards if you want, the, the greatest threat to the church in the 21st century doesn't come from outside, it comes from inside. Um, I mean, we might face persecution as a church, that's quite possible, isn't it? I, um, I've already warned my family I might end up in prison, if it's possible. Um, Nathan, you're coming with me, by the way. Um, but I think actually the biggest threat to the church is internal. It's, it's that sort of um, it's that sort of envy and, and, and strife and argument that happens within local churches. And um, can I just say how sorry sorry I am if that's been your experience of church? A lot of people have had very negative experiences of church, and as a minister of a church, I want to say sorry. If that's been your experience, so a lot of people have been very hurt by some of the things that have been said or done to them in local churches, and sometimes there's there's no one more disappointing than Christians. Actually, which is an awful thing to say, but it's true because we're just like this family in lots of ways. Um, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say that. You know, perhaps at Trinity we're spared some of the sort of really vicious arguments because people just leave and go to the church down the road. I mean, you can do that in London, can't you? Um, But in your white Christian union or, um, you know, maybe with your own family, it might even be a Christian family that you come from. Uh, There can be all kinds of bitterness and and divisions and uh, even amongst ministers. Ministerial envy is a huge problem. In god's church people who wish they had someone else's church family or someone else's church building someone else's church budget you know we're just like this family that's not a good thing it's a desperate thing Uh, and it seems it seems extraordinary doesn't it that god should have entrusted this this promise this future to such a dysfunctional family does that not strike you as strange we're so divided and yet God entrusts his promises, he entrusts his gospel to us. And we're to pass it on to the world, that's our job. But the thing is that he hasn't, um, he hasn't left us without a, without a brother and without a king. And that's our second summary point from chapter 42. So not just a family that's dysfunctional, but a, a king who is kind. King who's kind. So Joseph is an extraordinary king, isn't he? We saw him become king in Egypt in, in um, at least prince in Egypt in chapter 41. But we didn't actually manage to get to the get to the end of chapter 41. There's something I want to point out about the names that Joseph chooses for his babies. Um it's a difficult thing, isn't it, um, Nathan? Choosing a choosing a, a name for a baby. Uh, Luke, I think is it's, it's, you know is it's, it's a good name to choose. Um, probably a few that you discounted in early stage. I mean, Keith Richards. You probably wouldn't want to go there. Imagine Cliff Richards. even though a could get a bit complicated, couldn't it? Um, but do you notice the names that um, that Joseph chooses for his children? Have a look at verse 46 um, of chapter 41. Uh, that's on page 46. So verse 46 of chapter 41. Um, uh, sorry, let's actually get down to verse 50. Verse 50 on page 46. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Manasseh and Ephraim. Mr. Forgetful and Mr. Fruitful. That's basically what he calls his two kids. Mr. Forgetful and Mr. Fruitful. because in, on the one hand, sort of, he's forgotten all of the um, all of the hurt that was caused to him by his father's family. I think that's the uh, that's the meaning of the first one. But he's he's not going to forget the promises that God made to his great-granddad, who was Abraham. Uh, do you remember God promised that Abraham would be fruitful and? So Joseph is going to be fruitful. Descendants are going to come from him, just as God promised Abraham. He's going to be a fruitful king. Uh, The whole of Genesis, in many ways, is about the many descendants' promise that God makes to Abraham in chapters 12 to 15. And Joseph wants to fall into line with that. He wants to be part of that promise. He's fruitful, and he's also powerful. Um, It's hard to miss that in in chapter 42. You notice verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor or, or ruler of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brother arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. It's about as low as you can get, isn't it? It's hard to get lower than that. And he's a powerful king. And, and when the brothers get back to um, to tell their dad who Joseph is in chapter 45. Um, going to see next week. They're going to they're going to say to their dad, Joseph is ruler in all Egypt. Um, he's a he's a powerful king. That's the that's the superpower of the day. It's interesting, isn't it? Hundreds of years before Saul and David and Solomon and all of the great kings um, that are going to rule over God's people, there is already a powerful king. He's he's an Israelite. Uh, who provides for the people, who rules over the, over the Middle East, um, who saves lives, you know. Uh, he's wise and and he's godly. And it's someone who makes us long for the kings to come. We kind of think, wouldn't oh, it be, be great if we could have a king like this over God's people when they become a, a great nation? Now, Joseph represents two things. A, a fruitfulness that points to the past and and a, 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 a powerfulness, if that's a word, that points to the future. But most notably of all, you notice know, in the present, he's compassionate. You see, his kindness as his brothers come, come to him. Um, Joseph's brothers arrive and he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. It's been a while, you know. And um, that is a perfect situation for revenge, don't you think? Uh, because suddenly, he's got the reins of power. I mean, it was very different, wasn't it? Uh, 20 years previously when when they could chuck him in a pit and sell him off as a slave. But now, all the cards are in his hand, the boots on the other foot. Yeah? I don't know whether you read about um, Anthony Horovitz. He's he's a writer, he's written a lot of novels. And uh, uh, quite a few years ago, he wrote a play uh, that was on, I think, in the West End. And uh, there was a theatre critic called Anna Treneman, I think, who, uh, who slated it. I think she gave it two stars. And uh, Anthony Horowitz says he, is, he has never forgiven her. And um, he says he's someone who, who takes bad reviews very, very, you know, very poorly. And so in his latest book, which is sort of who done it, the person who is murdered is a theatre critic. Who um, bears a striking resemblance, I think, to Anna Treneman? I mean, that's, you know, all these years later, he's found a way using his power as a novel writer to to sort of get some revenge. Wouldn't you love it if um, one day uh, you could become head of MI5 and um, you could send a couple of spies to just go and talk to that history teacher who gave you a really hard time? You know, just frighten him a little bit. Um, I don't know if you have a dream of that sort of revenge. Well, Joseph doesn't go there, okay? He doesn't go there. We might be longing for that to happen, but what does the, the king do? He weeps. He weeps. Verse 24. Uh, despite their lies, so in verse 13, do you, know, so they, do you know, so they say to him, our youngest brother is no more. You've got to keep up the pretense, haven't you? Yeah. Um, and uh, so Joseph well, he knows that's a lie, he's standing right in front of them. So they lie to his face. And then um, verse 22, there's sort of attempts at self-righteousness. Reuben says, you know, I, I, I didn't want to harm him, it wasn't my idea. Uh, but he loves them. This um, powerful, fruitful king. This is compassion on these brothers who tried to harm him. And so you see, it, it, it seems a bit harsh, the way that he treats them, but, but can you see what his motive is um, as he deals with his brothers over this chapter and, and then over the next three chapters to come? We're going to look at those next week. So can you see what he does? He, he remembers that dream that he had um, of the 11 brothers and his mum and dad all, all bowing down to him. And so everything that he does... From that point onwards, you know, the interrogation, the accusations, the imprisonment, keeping Simeon hostage, uh, the the command to go and fetch Benjamin and the money in the sacks and and all these traumatic events. Everything he's doing is sort of an an attempt to reunite his family. So he interrogates them to find out that his youngest brother Benjamin and his dad are still alive. Okay, there's still a chance to, to put this car crash of a family back together again and so from from that point onwards he's working to see this family brought together and at peace with one another that is his aim and he doesn't want them just reunited but but reconciled he wants to see them changed and and, and that's our third point very briefly, uh, we're going to look at this more next week, but we can't leave chapter 42 without having a look at the brother's just seeing them begin to change. So the third point, hearts which are changing. So chapter 42, verse 18. and um, notice how Justin, uh, not Justin, Joseph, is testing their hearts. Okay, verse 18. Now he wants to know if they've really changed. There are a whole series of tests that sort of come out over the next few chapters. Uh, that he sets for them he wants to know if they've really changed or if he can encourage them to change At verse 19 he says if you're honest men okay in other words I want you to be honest men and um, and as they start to suffer it sort of cuts them open you see as, as their um, as their experience begins to mirror joseph's experience so they begin to change can you see verse twenty one it's interesting, isn't it? They connect their suffering with Joseph's, verse 21. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. You see how God's working in their lives through the suffering that they're experiencing? As he so often does. And notice too how, how Reuben starts to become aware. And this was such, such an important step for me um, when I became a Christian. I realized that um, God didn't owe me a favor, that actually I deserved God's judgment. And do you notice how Reuben starts to realize that? End of verse 22. Have a look at that. End of verse 22. He says, Now we must give an accounting for his blood. Okay. He expects nothing less than to, to face the music. Yeah, he's aware of what he's done wrong, and he knows that he deserves to be punished for it. He's killed somebody, and yet his family is is soon to be remade into God's family, into the people that he's that he's choosing. That is God's plan. To bring together this people, not just save them um, from starvation, but to transform their hearts, so that they're, they're reunited, reconciled, so that they're one, so they're one people that He can work through to fulfil His promises. And you know, it's true that Christians are such a—you know—we're we're a dysfunctional band sometimes. We're—you know—we're sometimes a desperate, and a ramshackle bunch of people in God's church, and we shouldn't be too surprised to find sinners in God's church, should we? But this is the raw material that God's working with. You know, we'll let each other down, we'll be self-righteous, uh, we'll be critical sometimes. Uh, we'll resent the fact that we're working harder than other people. But if, if you're not yet a Christian, you're looking at the church from the outside, um, you know, I don't mind you knowing that. Um, I think you need to know that, actually. Because we're works in progress. I, you know, you'll find that out sooner or later. So I might as well tell you now. Now there's a lot of raw material here for God to work with. But whatever you make of Jesus, he is a compassionate king. He's a kind king, compassionate enough to give up his life for anyone who's prepared to come to him. He goes to the cross as self-sacrifice to, to pay the punishment for, for the sins that we commit and he has a plan to change us so have hope you know I, I i sometimes i feel so despairing you know when when you've been a christian for a little while you start to realize that you're making the same mistakes over and over again and it's and and you can just despair sometimes and you kind of oh, i give up it's just not worth it um i can't believe I, I i mean why do i not learn don't give up hope jesus is powerful and he's compassionate and he, and he weeps over us, yeah? The same way that he wept over Jerusalem. And he's fruitful, he calls us his family, and, 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 he's, and he brings people in, and he forgives the hurt that we've caused him, the way that we've turned against him, so blatantly sometimes. And he, and he has a plan to, to reconcile us and, and to reunite us with with each other, eternally, eventually. Um, and perfectly and he's initiated a plan to see his family at peace with one another and we're part of that plan amazing thing wonderful thing the book of Hebrews as we said last week describes how Jesus was sort of prepared to be a savior through suffering in the same way as Joseph but what does it say next it says that we all belong to the same family we all belong to the same family Hebrews 2, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. As he, through the gospel and through his word, reunites this dysfunctional family around himself. People like us are brought together around his right now maybe as we prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper we're going to take the bread and the wine together um, the Bible says it's a good time to, to think about people we, we might have hurt people maybe we're out of fellowship with them uh, um, wrongs we need to right, things we may need to say sorry for it's a good time to do that isn't it? I think of Christians we we Maybe I need to go and talk to you. Maybe it's um, time to make a, a mental note of people with whom we need to be reconciled. It's never too soon to do that, is it? Maybe you could send a text tonight or grab someone off to church. Maybe it's time, too, like Reuben, to, to, to remember the judgment that we should have faced the accounting that, that should have been. Held towards us, but it's been put on Jesus. The, the, the way that, that our sins should should have been punished, but by grace they're not going to be. But above all, it'll be time to come with empty hands to a compassionate King, whose plan it is to reunite us as His family and say, "Thank you. Now make us one." Should we pray? Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you know that there's plenty of envy and and strife and disunity within your family sometimes. Um, I thank you that you're a a compassionate and a gracious king, that you're fruitful and that your plan is to, through your own self-sacrificial death, to unite people within your church. And so I pray Father, we wouldn't just be gathered together, but I pray we'd be reconciled with one another, and uh, I ask Father that you would do a great work in us, so that we come to enjoy the unity for which Jesus paid, and we ask these things in his name, Amen.